Our opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 27, and we're going to three for a loop because we're actually bringing you Dorothea Puente, a.k.a. the Death House Landlady. We hadn't planned on doing this one yet. No. I mean, last episode we talked about Richard Speck and missing and murdered Indigenous women. And then we just completely changed it because March has been madness for us. Definitely. But not in like the fun way, like the sport way. No, it's very much the not fun way. (laughs) (laughs) It's been very busy. This one seemed like it'd be quicker. So that's why I said I've got to do Dorothea. But then it actually is probably going to be a a long episode. Yes, you got a lot of info. Yeah, there was a lot more info on her than I thought. And there's a documentary out on Netflix. which also a ghost adventures <laughs> which we'll talk about <laughs> zach bagans makes an appearance in freshly brewed noir again i mean we love those cameos don't we he's so entertaining this one does not disappoint either no we we very much enjoyed it we enjoyed the dollar 99 we spent on youtube to watch it i know because neither of us wanted to get discovery plus nope. just to watch it. we're not doing that we stream enough stuff we're not paying another subscription but we'll pay the two dollars yeah we've decided that if we ever hear that Zach is making an appearance in one of our cases that we're covering, we just have to spend that $1.99. <laughs> it's cheaper than our coffees, except for the ones we make at home. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we will definitely discuss that at the end. We will. But these past two weeks have been so crazy for us, maybe even three weeks. Yeah, I would say three weeks. Yes. And so this is impromptu. You know, this is a change <laughs> of schedule and that's okay. It's okay to do. We think you'll enjoy this one. We definitely have to give a shout out to Crystal for this recommendation. Thank you, cousin. It was a good one. Yes. Mm-hmm. Should we start? Without or... further ado. There, okay. There okay. we go. Dorothea Puente was Sacramento's boarding house serial killer. Oh, are we still in California? We are still in California, everybody. Is this the 70s? Have we been in California for three episodes now? We went to Brazil for a second. Oh, we did. (laughs) Yes, that was a fun trip. Very worth it for our Dexter serial killer, Pedro. Yes. And now we're back, we're back, in, back California. in California. We just can't leave California. I mean, it's my home state, so I'm not mad about it. And this is your home city, right? So I was born in San Diego and we stayed there until I was 10. And then we moved up to Sacramento. So this is like half of my childhood was Sacramento. Was this happening around? It absolutely was. We moved up there, I want to say 87. So this was happening when we moved up there and then she was caught a year later. So, I mean, I was too young to really be into the serial killer scene at that time. I was mostly into Freddy Krueger movies, I guess. Um. Oh, of course. Classics. (laughs) Yeah, The Nightmare on Elm Street, that that kind of stuff at that time. Yeah. I mean, we weren't aware of serial killer old ladies. I was 10, 11. I was not into the serial killers yet. No. Okay. Well, that's cool that we're, you know, taking it back to your hometown. Taking it back to my hometown. So we're going to talk about Dorothea Puente. In the 80s, she operated a boarding house in Sacramento, California. Most of the boarders were elderly or mentally ill and had little or no contact with family. She would murder boarders by poisoning them and then continued to cash their social security checks after burying their bodies in her backyard. 
She netted over 5000 every month from this awful scheme. Her total murder count was nine, but she is only convicted on three of them. We will discuss what is known about her early life, her arrests, her M.O., the victims, her capture, and her conviction. Now, this case is what <laughs> made me not trust anyone. Like, if you can't trust old ladies, who can you trust? <laughs> if you can't trust old ladies. <laughs> you should not trust old ladies, specifically... Well, Dorothea Puente. Dorothea Puente and Sacramento, too, because, you know, my brother lives in a care home in Sacramento. And one of the care homes he was in, he was not getting the care he needed. And we had mm. to switch him to another care home. Um, they weren't taking care of him medically. So they don't stay on top of those things, huh? Sometimes, no, they don't. Even now. And this was in, you know, the 2000s. So this was um, probably five years ago, six years ago. Wow. So negligence was kind of the norm and in these yeah. scenarios. And it still happens. It's sad because if there's no relatives to check in on the family members, how do you know what's going on? That's true. I mean, we need good social workers, but they're obviously overworked. And oh, absolutely. As we'll find out in Dorothea's case, she knew what to say to throw people off of her tracks. This is definitely a good facade for her because I thought she was in her 70s. <laughs> but she was when only was 39. Happening. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, wow. What happened to her to like age her? That much? Yeah. She played the old lady card very well. Okay. Well, I'm sure we'll... uh get into all those details. Yes, we will. So first, we're going to talk about her early life. She was born Dorothea Helen Gray on January 9th, 1929 in Redlands, California, to Trudy Mae Yates and Jesse James Gray. Her upbringing can definitely be described as traumatic. Both of her parents were alcoholics, and her dad would hold a gun to his head and threaten to take his life in front of his kids. Wow, that is traumatic. So oh she gosh. came into the world into a bad situation. Her father, very, like, manipulative. Yes. And her father ended up dying of tuberculosis in 1937, and her mother lost custody of the children a year later and then died in a motorcycle accident shortly after that. So she lost wow. her both of her parents at a young age. Right off the bat, yeah. And then Dorothea stated that she was sexually abused after being sent to an orphanage at the age of 10. And now I have heard some very awful stories about orphanages and yeah. how they treated children. So that does not surprise me. It, it's so sad, though, you know, because you have no parents and relatives to take care of you and she you're brought into this traumatic, scary life. Um, and kids are innocent. They can't protect themselves. So exactly. And that's adults taking advantage and just being evil. Right. So Dorothea apparently moved through several foster homes before some relatives from Fresno, California, took her in. In 1945, around the age of 16, she married a soldier named Fred McFowl and had two daughters with him between 1946 and 1948. She sent one to live with relatives in Sacramento and gave the other daughter up for adoption. She became pregnant again shortly after, but suffered a miscarriage. Later in 1948, her husband left. She felt embarrassed about this, so she would lie and state that her husband had died of a heart attack and that she was a widow. She began forging checks, but wasn't very good at it at first because she was arrested the same year. And this is where her first felony conviction comes up in the system for forgery in Riverside, California. She spent a year in jail and was paroled for six months. After her release, she became pregnant by a man she met and gave the daughter up for adoption right after giving birth. 
right off the bat, she's having a very difficult life. Yeah. And I mean, her poor kids that she just keeps giving away. And maybe that's good for them. So yeah. they weren't in a similar situation to her. I don't know that's about true. the men she was with, but if she just felt like maybe that was safer for them. I mean, not that I'm going to give her much credit because she's a murderer, but at least she gave the kids away so they could have a better life. If that was her intention, I don't, I mean... Or it could have been selfish too, huh? Yeah. I don't know what the intention was behind that. It sounds like her, maybe her marriages are not the most stable either. I think we can agree with that. <laughs> In 1952, she married a man named Axel Johansson. She stayed married to him for 14 years, but it is reported that it was a rough marriage. It is somewhere around this time that she had moved up to Northern California. In 1960, she was convicted of owning and operating a brothel and sentenced to a short time in the Sacramento County Jail, 90 days. She opened a brothel? I, okay. Uh, not in everything I've read, but in some places I've read she was a sex worker for a little bit of time, and then she decides that she wants to open up a brothel and run it. And she does that for a while. Right, until she's convicted in 1960. Then in 1961, Johansson had Dorothea committed to DeWitt State Hospital after she had been binge drinking and attempted to kill herself. Mm, this is kind of a, a parallel with yeah. what her dad did. So during this stay, she was diagnosed as a pathological liar with an unstable personality. I think that makes sense. She had some things going on. But when you come from an upbringing like that, can you ever get out unscathed? I feel like there have been people who have been in situations like that and they come out okay. Maybe because they know how to manage it or get the help they need. That's true. That's true. Maybe she didn't have that kind of outlet. Uh, yeah, in the 60s. I'm not sure what they were doing about it. They were doing shock therapy around this time still, too, I think. That's, has that ever proven to be productive pro or helpful? It's proven the opposite. <laughs> so, right. no, it's never helpful. So after her release, she started passing herself off as a caregiver, nurse, or even a doctor and would make house calls to the elderly. She would arrive at their house with a medical bag that she filled with a stethoscope, blood pressure cuffs, and other medical supplies to appear as though she was legitimately a practitioner. So she is, I mean, don't you need a license or something for that? Like, uh, not just, in the 60s, Jennifer. show up like, <laughs> I'm here to uh, tend to you. She was a scammer, like scam artist all the way. You do need a license to be all of these things, but she would pass herself off as one. Okay. So there were props. It wasn't real. What she would do when she would make these house calls is give the unsuspecting victim sedatives, specifically a stupefying drug that would render them immobile. While they couldn't speak or move, she would take things from their home, like money, jewelry, and also checks that she would later write to herself in cash. Then she would leave while they were still unable to move or even passed out. So some of them, the ones who weren't passed out, are like watching her do this. Yes. One man actually saw her take a ring off his finger. She like went around the house. She was dumping coins into her purse. And then she comes over to him while he can't move. His eyes are open and she just pulls her ring right off his finger. This is kind of like that scene in You, season three. <gasps> yes. When like where... he can't even move. He's on the floor. Yes. <laughs> Fully conscious, but cannot move. That's, That's scary. scary. Yes. Yeah. And there's nothing you can do. No. <laughs> so this was her career at the moment <laughs> um pretending to be a nurse practitioner yeah and and stealing doesn't and... she sound like a great individual <sighs> not the best no okay so in 1968 dorothea married roberto puente so this is her third husband we're on now 
Husband number three. Mm-hmm. Dorothea was 37 and Roberto was 18. So okay. Was, so she was, you know, in her cougar phase. Yes. <laughs> uh, hey, you know, whatever floats your boat. Uh, he was a legal age. Still, come on, 18? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I couldn't imagine he was in the, uh, the mindset <laughs> for this. Well... After only around 16 months, they did separate with Dorothea stating Puente was abusive. But we don't know if that's She was a pathological liar, so we're not sure. Okay. About a year later, she tried to serve him with divorce papers, but he went to Mexico. The divorce wasn't final until around 1973. They continued to have violent encounters when he would be around, and she filed a restraining order against him in 1975. She would continue to use the surname Puente for the next two decades. To her advantage. (laughs) Yeah. Well, she's had, what, three last names now? Well, four, including her maiden name. That you have to keep in mind as we go on. She's had four different names now in the system. And I think back then, AKAs were kind of hard to keep track of, right? Absolutely. As far as like record keeping. Record keeping was not what it was today. So just keep that in mind. After divorcing Puente, she focused on running a boarding house, which, according to California Court of Appeal records, was located at 1426 F Street in downtown Sacramento. She established herself in the community as someone who could provide aid to the homeless, mentally ill, and those struggling with addictions. She would have free burrito nights for the community, would hold AA meetings, and hosted events to help people sign up to receive SSI benefits. So here, this is where, like, <laughs> is she where is we... taking advantage of her old woman demeanor. Like, yes. She's telling these people, yeah, come on, let me help you sign up for your, your SSI benefits. Or, you know what she's doing. Yeah. She's trying to redirect them in with some burritos, please. Well, let me tell you, California, Northern California, Southern California. They love some burritos? We love some burritos. Some tacos. <laughs> and there's some really good Mexican food in California. I believe that. Mm. Yes. Oh, yeah. I know. I mean, it wouldn't get me. I'm not a big burrito fan, so I would. But I most would. Californians, they were like, burrito night at Puentes? Let's go. Sign me up. What do I do? Give me that burrito. Here, she was yes, sneaky. Here is my social security number. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> She changed her outward appearance by wearing big granny glasses and only dressing in clothing that would appear more vintage or older in fashion, and she let her hair turn gray. And I did read in one place that she actually dyed it gray, so I'm not sure which is true. At any well, you rate, couldn't put it past her. Right. At any rate, she was trying to come across as much older than she actually was. You hold off on the moo-moos as long as you can, but... <laughs> For her, it was like as soon as possible. (laughs) And she wasn't in a pandemic. So, you know, if she was, we could give her a pass. Yeah, but no. She's like, let me put on these moo-moos and these big glasses and try to fool people. At some point, she met and married Pedro Montalvo. However, Montalvo left the marriage after only a week. Smart man. It's like, like, how long were they dating? Um, For this to lead just to like a, a week. She moved like fast and furious with her relationships. That's just, I don't understand that. Well, he was a smart man. He saw some red flags and ran. Got out of there quick. (laughs) He did. It had to have been like from the day of the wedding. Yeah. Just downhill from there. He's like, how old are you? You look 80. (laughs) I'm out of here. What happened? Something's wrong. I don't get it. (laughs) Um, And she did a lot of things. Also, she funded charities and scholarship programs Mm. for Sacramento's Hispanic community. She really just pulled the wool over the community's eyes. They saw this little lady who was donating money and helping people burrito night what could you do 
Yeah, but we've seen it in a couple episodes that when people start these charities and they're actually like serial killers. That is true. Like, Anybody who runs a charity. We're very skeptical. We're a little suspicious. <laughs> what are you doing behind this? There's some really good ones out there, but yeah, we've seen too many of these serial killers come from yeah. similar it's like kind foundations. of like the go-to facade. Yeah. Mm. Mm. <laughs> We'll start a charity one day. People will be like, what do you do, ladies? <laughs> Who have you like immediately suspicious? <laughs> right. We'll never start a charity. We'll just donate to them. There you go. In 1978, Dorothea was charged and convicted of illegally cashing 34 state and federal checks of her tenants. She was sentenced to five years probation and ordered to pay 4000 in restitution. She was also ordered to stay away from the elderly and could not operate a care home or handle government checks. But she will forget about this. <laughs> yes. Uh, Very quickly. It's like, well, she she did not follow that. Did you not read your sentence sheet, my dear, and listen to your probation officer? Unfortunately. Uh-huh. Dorothy is around 53 now, okay? Okay. In her 50s. In her 50s, and it's 1982. But looking like she's 70. <laughs> or 80. I don't know. I look <laughs> at these pictures, and I, I get grandma vibes. I'm like, how old are you? I know. I, when you told me she was 50, I couldn't even believe it. Jennifer's like, no. 61-year-old <laughs> Ruth Monroe had worked at a pharmacy for years, and there was a man that would come in and kept trying to ask her out. His name was Harold. They started dating, and one night, he took her out to eat at a place called the Flame Club. Dorothea was a waitress there. Harold knew Dorothea and introduced her to Ruth. Ruth and Dorothea started hanging out and became good friends. Ruth had saved up some money and wanted to open up a cafe, so Dorothea said they should open up one together. They opened up a restaurant, but Dorothea kept saying that it was losing money, and she needed Ruth to put more of her own money into it. Ruth would abide and give Dorothea more money whenever she asked. Then Harold was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and after he passed away, Ruth didn't want to live alone, so Dorothea told her to come live at her place on F Street in Sacramento. Ruth moved in in April of 1982, and everything seemed fine for a while. He would stop by Dorothea's to visit his mother every day after work. It wasn't until the last few days of Ruth's life that her son noticed something was wrong. One day, he came to see his mom that she did not look well. His mom told him that the restaurant had closed down because there was just no more money left, and she was sad. So sad. All I'm she not... wanted to do was open up a cafe with her friend, mm -hmm. with her quote-unquote friend. Yeah, she is not a friend. We'll I find know. out. And and then her boyfriend passed away? or Yeah, he passed away from terminal cancer. She totally took advantage of her, mm -hmm. didn't she? What Dorothea did was she had made Ruth a drink. It was a creme de mint, but he thought it was strange that his mom was drinking, and Bill was like, my mom doesn't drink. This is weird. You know, Ruth was like, well, Dorothea just made it to calm my nerves. But the next day, he came to see his mom, and Dorothea said that he should let her rest because she wasn't feeling well. But Bill insisted on going upstairs and seeing his mother. When he got to her room, she was lying in bed and wasn't moving, but her eyes were open. Bill mm. sat on the bed next to her, put his hand on her shoulder, and kept telling her that she was going to be okay. You're going to be okay, Mom. you got to think. Bill had believed that Dorothea was actually in the medical field. So he thought, okay, That's she's, she's going to be okay. Dorothea was a nurse or a doctor or whatever she told them. Mm -hmm. And that she thought that her friend was taking care of her. Exactly. It's my friend who's a nurse, so she's going to be fine. Tears started streaming down his mother's cheeks, but she couldn't say anything to him. The next day, he got a call from his sister that Dorothea had called her to say that their mother had passed away and to come get her stuff. All Dorothea gave them was an empty purse. Ruth had money and jewelry, but Dorothea told them that she had given it all to her. 
Now that's some BS. This is why everyone needs a, a living trust. <laughs> you have taught me this. It's specified. <laughs> All podcast related things go to Jennifer. <laughs> <laughs> Dorothea had also called the police to come and get Ruth's body. The autopsy revealed that Ruth had died from an overdose of codeine and Tylenol. Dorothea told the police that Ruth was depressed because her husband had been terminally ill. The police believed her story and it was considered a suicide. Gosh. I mean, and you, you hear that and it's kind of a believable story, right? Oh, yeah. She played on the events that had happened to make it look like she had committed suicide. And use it to her advantage. Yep. But the son, he never believed it. It always was very suspicious well, to him. Well, especially when... All of a sudden, all of her things go to her, yes. right? And not her family. Exactly. And there was a joint bank account that they had opened for the business and that had been cleaned out. Oh, very suspicious. Oh, yep. This is an enemy, not a friend. She was terrible to her. I know. And I'm sure she realized that after she wasn't able to move and yeah. and speak that, she, you know, maybe towards the end she realized like, my supposed friend has been poisoning me or and now, yeah, and I can't tell my stuff. She couldn't even tell her son. Because she was probably drugged with the same thing that Dorothy had given other victims. Only a few weeks later, Malcolm McKenzie, a 74-year-old who Dorothea had robbed of his pension money, told the police that it was Dorothea who drugged him and stole from him. The police came and arrested her, and she was convicted of three theft charges on August 18, 1982, and sentenced to five years in jail. While in jail, she began corresponding with Everson Gilmouth, a 77-year-old retiree in Oregon. She likes those retirees and those checks. They started writing to each other frequently, and a connection was formed. So much so that when Dorothea was released after serving only three years of her sentence, Gilmouth was waiting to pick her up from jail in his red 1984 pickup truck, and they started making wedding plans. They moved into the house at 1426 F Street and lived in the upstairs apartment. Here she is with her uh, with her super quick relationships and marriages again. I think this is four, right? Is this four? I think so, yes. <laughs> okay. Well, and so I guess he just started writing to her in, in jail. In jail. Yeah. It was like a pen pal type of connection. Like you could write to an inmate, I guess. Okay. I mean, we have heard of... Write to a sweet old lady. Maybe maybe he believed she didn't do it. He or... probably did. He probably thought she was just some sweet old lady and, you know, oh, what's a little forgery charge? Yeah. No big deal. <laughs> love is love. Jennifer. Sure. You can see through four three charges. Love okay. Well, well, <laughs> love is blind. Unfortunately for him, I don't know. <laughs> Could foresee what his future was holding. I know. And <laughs> it was not good because around the fall of 1985, the year Dorothea was released from jail and had Gilmouth move in, she hires a handyman named Ismail Flores to install some wood paneling in her apartment. They did a sort of barter for the labor, and Dorothea gave Flores a red 1984 pickup truck, which oh. she told him had belonged to her boyfriend in Southern California, who no longer needed it. Yeah, well, interesting story. Do, okay. do we remember a Ford pickup truck before? I, I oh, think, I think we didn't, do. He, didn't he just pick her up in that? I is... believe he did. Okay. Yes. Oh, why does he not need it anymore? Well, according to her, he's down in Southern California now and doesn't need it. <sighs> <laughs> then Dorothea asked Flores to build a box six feet by three feet by two feet to quote unquote store books and other items in. Is that a, a coffin? It would sound like one, Jennifer. <laughs> yes. I was like coffin. Six, you go six feet. You already are like coffin vibes, right? Absolutely. Six feet by three feet by two feet. If somebody asks you to build a box like that, you need to question that a little bit more. Yes. But, you know, he probably was like, you know, sweet old lady. She, she just wants to put her books somewhere. Again, right. She 
Oh, she tricked so many people with her sweet old lady look, right? What we have learned is we will not <laughs> trust old ladies anymore. <laughs> After she apparently filled this box, she nailed it shut and asked Flores if he could help her load it in the truck she just gave him and drive it to a storage unit since she doesn't really use this stuff anymore. Yeah, and like what? What is this heavy box? And why does it smell weird? And like, yeah, it was too early for Harry Potter books, or I could believe it. <laughs> so I don't know what was in the box, but it was. We'll find out. We'll find uh, out what was in we'll that fi- box. We'll find out what's in the box. So Flores, not suspecting anything, loads it up and drives Dorothea towards where she says the storage unit is. But along the way, as they were driving down Garden City Highway in Sutter County. She asks Flores to pull over. Then she tells him to dump the box on the riverbank because she decided, you know, during the drive, that she didn't really need what was in the box anymore because it was junk. It's like the longer this goes on, the more disposable the box is to her. <laughs> like, I could, I really wanted you to build this box for storage, but now, you know, let's just throw it let's... into the river. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's normal. <laughs> I all of a sudden realized I hate this stuff yes, and I don't want I it I want it out right now. And then take this truck and just go. <laughs> yes, I mean, you can throw this truck away if you want it. I don't, <laughs> I don't even care. care. <laughs> Get rid of it. <laughs> Poor Flores. <laughs> he was just, he had no idea. He was just trying to do some handyman stuff. Didn't know he was an accomplice to a murder. No, he definitely thought he was just helping out a old lady. A sweet old lady and got a truck out of it. Well, I mean, that's that's cool. Yeah. He was like, he didn't even ask for money. He was just, you know. Oh, yeah, you get this nice red Ford pickup truck. for just, All for just being an accomplice. <laughs> Unknowingly. It's just a small price to pay. <laughs> <laughs> then on January 1st, 1986, the box was spotted by a fisherman who called the police. When the investigators arrived, they found a badly decomposed body of an elderly man inside of the box. Keep in mind that while he was dead in this box by the river... Dorothea was still collecting his pension checks and wrote letters to his family telling them he had not reached out to them because he was ill. That is just so sad. Just think about, like, the family members who are getting letters from, like, their grandpa or their dad. Yeah. And, you know, he's he's doing all right. We haven't heard from him much, but, you know. Yeah, he's not feeling well, according to his letters. And then his body is found in a box that's on, on the bank. river. Yes. Ugh. Dorothea decides to maintain a room and board business and takes in 40 new tenants over the next several years. Meanwhile, her husband's body would remain unidentified for three years. Wow, they weren't able to identify him? I guess maybe they didn't. Science wasn't there yet. It was the 80s, and he was so badly decomposed. That's true. Yes, and then the water as Mm -hmm. well. Yeah, Yeah. because the box was in the water when they found it. Dorothea kept accepting new clients, mainly elderly, and was popular in the social worker community due to her reputation for accepting tougher cases like drug addicts and abusive tenants. She would collect the tenants' monthly mail before they would see it and paid them an allowance so she could pocket the remainder for her expenses. Ugh. Those she makes me so angry. Expensive. <laughs> I bet that that look was uh, expensive to keep up. <laughs> it's expensive to look old. <laughs> to make yourself look old. Parole officers would visit her boarding home during this time. Now, keep in mind that she had been ordered to stay away from the elderly and had to refrain from handling government checks. Yeah, so when the parole officers noticed this, did they? So officers visited her at least 15 times at the boarding home she operated on F Street, and not one violation was ever noted. What the hell? 
This was the 80s, and she previously had been convicted of charges with different last names, so we can just assume the 80s lousy record-keeping, along with her multiple aliases, kept her in the clear for so long. But you would think if her parole officers know her sentence... Like, well, she was just like giving them free burritos. <laughs> they were like, okay, like, right, we'll let this, uh, let this slide. Let this slide, sure. Yeah. How old is Mr. John Smith over there? Oh, he, would you like another burrito? That's crazy mm-hmm. that they went there 15 times and this was never not one violation made a violation. Wow. Nope. Neighbors started getting suspicious when they noticed a homeless man who was a known alcoholic and was referenced to by just the nickname of Chief digging holes in Dorothea's backyard. Dorothea said that she had adopted Chief as her personal handyman around the boarding house and had him dig in the basement and cart out soil and garbage in a wheelbarrow. During the time he was doing these chores for Dorothea, the basement floor was covered in a concrete slab. At one point, Chief also took down her garage in the backyard and installed a fresh concrete slab. A short time after this last project, Chief disappeared. So what was the like concrete slab project for? Was that probably to hide bodies? But yeah, he was just a paid accomplice, another one. And he didn't She I took mean, advantage of these I know and he handyman. was he was homeless and probably wanting to Oh, he's he's supposed to be here. I don't have a picture of Chief. So Chief... Oh, Chief is not Bert. Chief is not Bert. Right. So Chief was the handyman that people knew around as um, a homeless man who was an alcoholic. November 11th of 1988, a social worker called police about the disappearance of a tenant named Alvaro Gonzalez Montoya, a.k.a. Bert. Bert was a mentally disabled adult who was born in Costa Rica. At the age of 16, his family moved to the States and Bert was diagnosed with schizophrenia. His parents ended up putting him in a mental institution that gave him shock therapy. Now we know back in the day, mental institutions in the eighties still some too. really like immoral stuff, awful things, and uh, the poor guy. No. When he left the treatment center, he did not tell his parents and somehow found his way to Northern California to a detox center in Sacramento that let him stay there, even though he wasn't a drug addict. And that's because the social worker says that everybody just loved being around him. He was a very large man. He was like six feet tall or a little over, over 200 pounds. But he just was very sweet, congenial, and they just loved having him around. But they knew that it would be better for him to be in a care home than at a detox center because he didn't need to be there. Okay. During his stay there, one of the social workers, Judy, became insistent on helping Bert find a good boarding home where he could live with others and have a good quality of life. Judy had heard about Dorothea through other social workers and decided to go take a look at her boarding home. Dorothea came to the door and appeared to be a sweet older lady. She was actually nursing kittens in one of the rooms off the front and told Judy that she was independently wealthy and just liked helping people. Independently wealthy? (laughs) What does that mean? Like, I independently murder people and take their money? I guess cashing people's pension checks means you're independently wealthy. (laughs) Wow. Okay. That's that's a new one. (laughs) New definition. Yeah. Judy had truly felt that Bert would be in a wonderful place. And in the beginning, Bert did seem to be doing well at Dorothea's boarding home. But Judy told the police that she had called to check on Bert one day and Dorothea told her that he was visiting family out of the country. When Judy checked in a couple of days and Dorothea told her Bert hadn't returned yet, Judy told her that she was going to report him missing. And at first, Dorothea was like, no, 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 I'm sure he's coming back. Don't worry. 
But Judy had a really bad feeling. She was like, no, I'll I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going mm. to report him missing on Monday because it was the weekend. Yeah, her intuition was uh, telling her something had, was going yes, on. She had a very bad feeling. So the investigator arrives at Dorothea's boarding home with her parole officer to inquire about Bert's disappearance. The one who hasn't written any violations? <laughs> yep. Okay. So she tells them that she was expecting them and that she was gone to church when Bert left and he apparently left with a relative. The investigator asked Dorothea what kind of place she is running here and that is when Dorothea looks right at her parole officer and says, I am in violation of my parole. So she knew she had been caught. Because she's running a but murder not, house. Right, but not because of the parole officer. It was the investigator that was like, uh, what are you running here, lady? Yeah. And while the parole officer's snacking on a burrito next to him. Yeah, he, what? He's like, el- he's like elbowing him. <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, do your job. Like, this lady's clearly running a boarding house for the elderly. So, uh, can we look at this sentence here, sir? <laughs> that, um, <laughs> he's like, let me You're wa- supposed to be a uh, monitor. Let me wipe these uh, burrito uh, stains <laughs> off my shirt and look for my pen. I mean, this whole time, this, this, whole, this whole time you've been doing this. <laughs> This is news to me. (laughs) Yeah. So the investigator asks if they can look around, and she agrees. As the investigator was going through her house, he was noticing blue pills all over the boarding home. He finds some bottles of diazepam, which is a strong drug that induces sleep. With her past convictions of drugging people, the investigator was starting to put it all together. And before they left the house, he asked Dorothea if he could dig in the backyard so that they could tell the social worker that they had looked everywhere for Bert. And she was like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Jennifer, you're right. (laughs) Actually, she told them they could. But you know what? I think she uses that compliance to her advantage. Like, oh, yeah. She's like, I'm just a sweet old lady. Sure. Go go look at everything and dig. I don't I don't know. Do, do you want me to make you some cookies while well, you wait? Uh, we have free burrito night tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Love you, those burritos. Would you like a creme de mint? <laughs> so Dorothea told them that, yes, they can go and search the backyard. And they noticed that there was some recently disturbed soil. So as they start digging... The investigator looks up at the house and notices Dorothea staring out at him from the balcony on the second floor. Creepy. And she, so she's like watching him like, you better, you better not. You better go to the right, to the right, to the right. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not right there. No, no, no. That looks like the wrong not place. The gar- not where the garden gnomes are. <laughs> so they're starting to dig and find pieces of fabric. And as they're pulling out these pieces of what look like leather to the investigator, they come across something hard. They end up pulling out a human femur bone. And as they pulled on it more, they discovered that it was attached to more bones and that the dried pieces that they thought were leather were actually pieces of skin they were pulling off of the bone as they were digging. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Well, people have got to stop burying bodies in their backyard. (laughs) You know what? And I was... I was. <laughs> Can we just go back to that? People have got to stop burying bodies in their backyard. <laughs> like I love how you say it. Like it's just common. Just stop burying the damn bodies in the backyard. But did an episode about that? We have yes, and people just are buried in the backyard, and they think that's a good idea. Like no one will ever yeah, find that was, them. That was Herb's episode. Herb Baumeister. Yes, it was. Yes, yeah. it was. But I'm surprised. You know, she didn't like plant plants around these foliage foliage or something yeah she actually had tomato plants all over the place 
Maybe so that they wouldn't dig up those areas, right? Maybe. Because some of the neighbors had commented about, oh, she had tomato plants, like, from one side of the fence all the way around. I feel like that's strategic. Like, I'm going to plant these plants or whatever, these vegetables above the... So maybe they'll stay away from it. Yeah. It's like, you know, look at these asshole investigators coming and digging up my <laughs> my vegetables. Stay out of my vegetables. <laughs> you jerks. I know. <laughs> well, it didn't work. They were smarter than this investigator. If only he was there sooner because he just put everything together really quickly. Really quickly. Yeah. Sure Calling out people and everything. Yep. <laughs> the coroner was called to the property as well as an anthropologist so that a proper excavation could be performed. Dorothea was questioned but played the unaware sweet boarding house old lady card and asked them to please let her know how old the clothes were so she knew when this happened because she knew nothing about it. Hmm. And she's been living in this house the whole time, right? She wasn't the original owner because it was built in 1890. So she was not the original owner of it. Like maybe this was somebody here from else? the previous Yeah, owners. like somebody else could have buried somebody here. So let me know how old it is. Since the investigators did not initially suspect Dorothea, she was allowed to leave the property and go across the street to get a cup of coffee because all of this was making her nervous. Yeah, when you are a murderer and you're about to get caught, I bet you <laughs> I bet you are nervous. You get a little nervous, yes. So, but you have to think the remains that they uncovered were definitely not Bert's because he had only been missing for a few months, so it couldn't have been his. The remains they found were much older already. I mean, the skin had been dried from being in the ground so long. So they knew it wasn't Bert, so they just let her go get a cup of coffee. She wanted to stay caffeinated. <laughs> but, <laughs> but she, she did, did not have good hobbies, well, apparently. She had, she had gardening, but she'd murder people. So she was almost there. She could have been in our cult, but ah, that's our biggest that's role. The you biggest can't role. murder people. And, well, she obviously was not in our cult. <laughs> no. <laughs> As they were excavating the first body, they came across more clothing in the ground. They started digging again, and they ended up pulling up a large human leg. And this one looked a lot more recent, like it could have been from a month or two ago. Just a leg? They pulled out a leg, and... Like, well, as they're digging, like, that's the first thing okay. they come across, and they pull, like, they have the shovel under it, and they pick it up, and it's a leg, an entire human leg. Well, that's alarming. <laughs> but they already found dead bodies. So. But this one's more recent. That's true. So the remains are of a large man, and they think he looks to be around 200 and some pounds. The investigator realizes that this body could be Bert's. Then he goes to look for Dorothea and realizes she's not getting coffee at the restaurant. She's gone. Where is she going? Is she surprise, surprise. a flight somewhere? Well, <laughs> <laughs> You're just right on, <laughs> Jennifer. I love it. So then they start to uncover a third body, then a fourth body, a fifth body. They end up discovering seven bodies total on her property. So she had a graveyard right behind in her backyard. Yes, she did. She was super close to the Capitol on a main street because F Street is a main street in downtown Sacramento. She was literally on a main street murdering people, burying them in her backyard just a few miles from the Capitol. It's just in plain sight. Yep. So apparently Dorothea had gotten her cup of coffee and fled. A bolo was put out for Dorothea. If you haven't heard our previous episodes, a bolo is what, Jennifer? 
Be on the lookout. That's right. Be on the lookout for Grandma. <laughs> so this is her bolo picture. I'll probably put that in our stories. This is from the 80s. Look at this. It's her picture. She just looks like the sweetest little old grandma. She really does. She's got her polka dotted dress on. Her hair's all pulled back and curly on the sides. Like she uses little sponge overnight rollers. Yeah. Did you say her vintage... Uh... Vintage polka dot dress. Moo moo. Yeah. Yep. Vintage moo moo. Giant yeah. I mean, you would not glasses. look at her and say... Serial killer. <laughs> you need to arrest her because she is a murderer. You would not be scared of her. Not, no. Not at all. But you should be mm-hmm. because she will poison you. Drug you. Suffocate you and bury you. So in Los Angeles, a man in a bar is approached by Dorothea. She tries to start a conversation with him. Is this an older man? Oh, oh, he is receiving pension checks too, Jennifer. Oh, oh, (laughs) So she can't stop. Just can't stop the game. She can't resist the urge. No. Is it at 62 you can collect? You have to be at least in your 70s for her She likes. She likes those ages, yes. Except for that one husband that was really young. I don't know what that was about. The 18-year-old. I don't think she had gotten... You know, her M.O. at that point. Yeah. Or do you think he just looked really old? To be 18 and looking that old? Maybe. Oh, that's a little concerning. Maybe partied a lot? I don't know. Drank a lot? I mean, age that, that's true. And also, whatever she does ages you as well. Murder people? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so she approaches this man at the bar, starts talking to him, and he recognized her from a news story. So he calls the police. Or actually, I think he called the local news station and they called the police. Because he was like, hey, you did a story on this woman, Dorothea, and she was hitting on me at the bar. And, and they're I like, think she wants my checks. Right, she wants my checks. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> get here quick. <laughs> then the news station calls the cops and the cops get there. And she's arrested and brought back to Sacramento, where she is charged with a total of nine murders. That of her boyfriend, Everson Gilmouth her friend, Ruth Monroe, and for the seven bodies of her tenants that were found on the property. The total victim count, and I'll probably put this picture in our story of the victims. There's one victim that is not pictured. It's Leona Carpenter, who was 78 and was a tenant. There was no picture that I could find of her. Uh, Ruth Monroe was 61. Everson Gilmouth was 77. Avero Burt Montoya was 51. Dorothy Miller was 64. Benjamin Fink was 55. Betty Palmer was 78, James Gallup was 62, and Vera Faye Martin was 64. I heard that Betty Palmer, who was 78, they found her body and her head, arms, and legs were cut off. Wow. I mean, in all seriousness, that's so sad. Like, these are people who are older, who needed care, and she totally took advantage of them. And And many were mentally disabled, too. So she preyed on mentally disabled people who didn't have relatives to look out for them. She's one of the worst. And it makes me really mad, too, because of my brother's situation. He's in a care home, and he had a really bad caretaker at one point, and like we said. So people like this really, really upset me because they are just preying on people that can't can't do anything. I know. They depend on other people. Right. Many of them mentally don't have the capacity a lot of times to ask for help, to tell you what's wrong. And she just... Would take them in, mm-hmm. take their money. Yes. And then poison them and kill them. Yes. And here's a picture of where the bodies were found. I'll put this in our story too. Yeah, this it's interesting is, to see that. It's like an aerial shot of the house and you can see where a bunch of the holes were dug and where they found bodies or pieces of bodies. And also the garage, right, where the cement was poured. Yes, and I think that was somewhere over there. They did actually excavate some of it, we were hearing. So we think that they got all the bodies on the property. But let's talk about that more when we talk about the Zach Bacon's episode. Okay. Because he brings it up. 
He does. Oh. Does she feel ba- ever feel bad about anything? In the documentary I watch, which is, what's it called? The Worst Roommate Ever on yes. Netflix. The first season, and it's the first episode on Dorothea Puente. The investigator actually says when he went to L.A. to extradite her back to Sacramento, he sat next to her on the plane. Like, he wasn't letting her out of his sight. And he says that she actually tells him that she was sorry. And he feels like only in that moment, maybe she was sorry. But that's the only time she showed any remorse. And, and that know... could be fake, too. We don't know. Right. Because she was a pathological liar. Right. And so she could have just been pretending like she was sorry. But he thinks she had no reason to lie at that point because they were just on the plane. And he thinks that she was truly sorry just in that moment. Unless she was trying to use it as a manipulation tactic. That's interesting. I, I never knew if she ever felt bad about anything. I mean, you're taking I don't advantage think of so. people. So. Yeah, I don't think so. To do all that to mentally disabled people, to your friend, to your fiance, I don't think she had any remorse. I think she was a psychopath. Absolutely. She just was in the shell of an old lady. It's not common, but it apparently exists. Yeah. Her case is fascinating to me. Yeah. So now we'll talk about the trial a little bit. Her trial began in October of 1992 and lasted until the end of that year. Over 130 witnesses were called, and the prosecutor put up evidence that Dorothea would drug her victims with sleeping pills, then suffocate them, then wrap their bodies in blankets and lye, which is used to break down soft tissue, and then wrap them again in plastic before dragging them into her backyard, where she buried them in the holes dug by hired convicts. When investigators initially asked her about the buckets of lye around her property, she said she didn't know anything about it and hadn't used it. But one of the investigators had discovered a room in the boarding house during the initial investigation that had a strong foul odor. Oh, that must be the uh, you saw that the murder, the death room, the death room, as uh, Zach Bagans calls it. When they pulled back the rug, the floor was stained with blood and had what looked like human tissue and a white powder, obviously the lie. And then maybe the decomposition of the bodies. So she lied about the lie, guys. Prosecutor Mm -hmm. told the jury that she would continue to cash the Social Security checks and pension checks of her victims after she murdered them and that most of the victims did not have relatives checking in on them. The defense called several witnesses who testified to Dorothea's generous and caring side in the community you know, burrito night. Mental health experts testified that her past abuse from her youth made her want to help those less fortunate, but that she also seemed to have an evil side that was brought out by the stress of caring for her tenants. Then don't do it. Yeah. It seemed like this was like her, not the job for you. Her plan the whole time yeah. was to start this boarding house and then take advantage. Oh, of yeah. So, but the defense had to have somebody say something nice about her. So that as nice as they could do it, I guess. That's a spin. Yeah. <laughs> the jury did not agree on all of the charges, so Dorothea was only convicted of three of the murders. They were deadlocked on the other six since some of the defense's testimony was that the tenants died in their sleep and she buried them because she was afraid of calling the police after being in violation of her parole. What do you think about that? Oh, it's such a lie. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. No, it's a, but what a great spin the defense had because there was at least one juror that could not get past this old lady and that part of the defense's argument. They did a good job as a defense team, obviously. Yeah. If you can, you know, have the jury split on that, it makes it tough to uh, decide on a verdict. Yeah. So they were, um, so it was a mistrial as to six of them, but she did get three consecutive life sentences. 
So the argument was that her only crime was cashing their checks. Basically, the defense said. Lies. <laughs> Not true. Right. She did end up receiving life in prison without the possibility of parole and was sent to the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. She went on to maintain her innocence for the rest of her life and died at 82 years old on March 27, 2011 of natural causes while in jail. Okay. Good riddance to you. Yeah. I mean, there doesn't sound like many people will miss her. No. The home still stands, though, because it was built in 1890 and is a historic building, so it can never be torn down. Because you know how a lot of houses where horrific murders take place, they will tear down the house. That's true. Yeah. But they can't with this one. It's too old. It's a historic building and it's protected. So they're... It's too old? Yes. It's a historic building built in 1890. So? So you'll never be a member of the historic... community. (laughs) I mean, I don't really understand why, because it's so old, it can never be knocked down. Because it's part of history. (sighs) Jennifer says, out with the old murder house, in with the new. Listen, get some new construction up in there, some new vibes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there are new vibes there, actually, because the new owners have embraced the home's macabre history. They've even gone so far as to place a mannequin outside of the home that is wearing Dorothea's infamous red coat. And that is the coat she put on and if you google her so is that really her coat oh no it's not her actual coat oh that'd be crazy (laughs) no they have a red coat on this mannequin and she's holding a shovel if you look up dorothea puente a lot of the pictures you see is of this little old lady in a red coat holding a purse like going through a gate because that's when she escaped when she was like i gotta go get a cup of coffee this is making me nervous yes that is an iconic um red coat i will say the owners say that not a day goes by that someone doesn't come and take a picture of the house. They love their home, though, and have done some upgrades on the inside to try and make light of the dark past and also just to freshen it up. They have also placed a large sign outside of the home that states, it was the awful, awful lady that did it, not me, signed the house. This is true. The house did (laughs) not do these things. But it's still a murder house, It is right? still a murder house, yes. And that's why I'm like, just, you know, knock it down. You know, let's modernize it a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer's never going to be, like, on the board of a historic committee, are you? <laughs> no, just no, no. tear it down. <laughs> I don't care. Couldn't, like, termite, like, destroy that wood. Uh, I, I just... Not if it's treated well. Okay. <laughs> you got to have a termite plan. Okay, good to know. You know, if you keep them up, they will last a very long time. Jennifer is not going for it. She says, tear it down. Just tear it down. You know, I I don't (laughs) understand. I feel like, you know, she did really horrible things. Why are we... Letting that energy stay there? Yes. Like, why are we making it a thing where it's something to be kind of not proud of, but like to show off? Dad. You know, I love the historic homes. Fear bias. If that was my family member that was buried there, yeah, I'd probably want that thing torn down. I wouldn't want to see it up and people like making fun. Right. Yeah. So to me, that would bother me if that was my family member that had been murdered by her. Yeah. I'm not a fan of it, but. But it's not the house's fault, remember? (laughs) Yeah. It's it's not not the house's fault. It's not the house's fault. We got to remember that. But I know it's, but it's tied to that house now forever. Yes. Yeah. And at least the, like the, the thing that makes it weird is the statue or the, the mannequin of her. Well, that's the owner's doing. They're like, hey, if people are going to come by our house every day and take pictures, it's we're going to, you know what? Go. Here you go. You want to see something? Here you go. All right. Well, 
<laughs> whatever floats your boat, I guess. <laughs> so we do have to talk about it's a 2017 episode of Ghost Adventures by Zach Bagans, where he actually goes ghost hunting with his team and a medium to Puente's home. I did not know this was going to be a paranormal episode. I didn't either. And so as I'm researching this and going through a bunch of things, because my timeline was not adding up with all her marriages. So I had to go through several different sites to find it. And then I was texting Crystal. Okay, is the address actually this or is it this? Because there's different addresses because she had like a previous boarding home that she had for a little while, but that's not the one where she murdered people. So I had to do a lot of online stuff looking for information. And I came across a page that talked about Zach Bagans doing an episode where he does some ghost hunting there. Yes, he does. <laughs> so as you know, we purchased the episode to watch. And we were entertained. Yeah, we were. It was, he never disappoints. It was a solid one ninety nine <laughs> that we spent and no regrets on this. It's on par with the Amons one because Amons had us rolling. Yes. Like, what was your favorite part? <laughs> well, I kind of liked when the mediums were there. When they brought them blindfolded? <laughs> so he blindfolds these people who, I guess, they flew in, right? So yes. you have to know where you're flying in. They weren't blindfolded on the plane. They had to fly into Sacramento. They had to be staying somewhere around Sacramento. So they obviously knew they were in Sacramento, but he blindfolds them from their hotel room or whatever to take them to the house. And then at the house, he has things covered so they won't know where they are, right? Yep. But come on, there's only one murder house in Sacramento. Is there only one? Well, I mean, well, this is the most infamous in Sacramento. Okay. And so they're blindfolded. And so I think one is what the psychic who like speaks to the spirits. And then the other one is... She draws what he sees. What he's like envisioning. What he's envisioning. So... <laughs> but he was coughing and choking and she was over there just sketching away, making a face of somebody. Yeah. Old lady. And so, yeah, and he's coughing and then the, the camera guy is like, I think I feel it too. Oh, yeah, because coughing is contagious. <laughs> And listen, I think that's just Sacramento ragweed. It's allergy you did say season. It was like the allergies. Sacramento has horrible, horrible allergy season. So I think they just all had a little touch of the allergies. Yeah, if you're not used to that, then yeah, you, you walk, come in and you're like, oh, oh. you walk into that with that dry heat in Sacramento. Yeah, it's going to be a problem. Yeah. <laughs> he was seeing some things. She was drawing some things. Who knows? They didn't have any backstory. And... He works with the best in the industry is what he says, right? That's what he claims. Yeah. So researchers and, you know, it's very scientific. Yes. I mean, we were seeing the stuff, spirit boxes and the EMF readers all in action. Right. And so we decided when we go to Savannah, we are going to download a spirit box app and because see. Because those are, that's real. It's something you can do. Because we don't want to invest in one too much. But hey, if there's a free app, we'll try it. Yeah. Why not? Don't, let's not get too, you know, expensive. No. And we're also going to try, I think we should try where I feel the spirit and then you draw what I'm feeling. Okay. I'm on board with this. Okay. We're going to do this when we go to Savannah because we're going to do an episode on one of the haunted houses there yes, that Nicole are. told us about. I'm excited about it. One of my favorite parts, though, was when he was laying in the bed. Oh, that I think that's my favorite part, too. <laughs> Let's talk Wait, about Which it. part? Because he's in the bed a lot and he's, he calls it the murder room, right? Or the death room? I think maybe it was the murder room. <laughs> the but murder room? Yes. He actually talked to the investigator that was in the documentary. So he legitimately talked to the investigator that caught Dorothea and that was in the room and rolled back the carpet and had seen the blood stains and everything. And so the investigator told him that's the room. This is how the house looked before. So Zach wants to stay the night there, of course. And he's got his right-hand man. Who is that guy that's always excited about everything? 
<laughs> like he was so hyped. His was... eyes are just like <laughs> large saucers. Anything that Zach says, he's like on board with and ready to go. Yes. He, like the way he looked at him, I was like, wow. Is that how we look at each other? I like, think it's how we look yes. at each other. Yeah. Yes. Anything you say. And that's what I said. I'm like, <laughs> you and I would be like Zach and that guy. Like, you'd be like, yes, whatever you say, I believe you. Of course. Of course. <laughs> Who was the other cameraman that was like, yeah, just uh, suffocate him. And they're like, what? Get out of there. Oh, who are yeah. you? I don't know who he was, but he was just like, why don't you put a pillow over his face and, uh, and suffocate, suffocate him? him? And it's like, what like, are you talking you about? Murdering. Yeah. So I think he was trying to like get in on the I'm possessed too, maybe. Yes. I think there was some I of think... that. But so when Zach is laying in the bed <laughs> and he... He's like immobile. Like he's laying there like, I can't move. Yeah. So he obviously took on one of the spirits that has been drugged by Dorothea, we're thinking, right? Yes. Is that what he's portraying? I think that's what his goal was. (laughs) (laughs) He's just like, I can't move. (laughs) He's just laying there. The cameraman and his right-hand man is just like, oh my God, what's going on? What's happening? And it's so dramatic. And then he gets up at one point, but then wants to go spend the night again. After saying he feels like he weighs 4,000 pounds, which if you feel that way, how can you lift yourself up? Yeah. I can barely lift myself up in the morning, but it's it's (laughs) other You know, (laughs) Hashimoto's, hello. (laughs) I feel heavy in the morning, but he was very dramatic about it, which Zach Bagans is always good at. Always dramatic, yeah. yes. He's in the bed, comes back downstairs, then he's like, I'm going to go spend the night there. And so he's laying in the bed, and he just sits up, and like, his top part of his body folds over, and he rolls off the bed. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what's happening? And then he's like yelling for help, Aaron! Right. But at the same time, downstairs, the camera guy is talking to his phone and he goes, oh my God, did you guys hear that? It sounds like footsteps. And it was Zach Bagans falling off the bed. I know, I know. Clearly. And everything is like, obviously. Like, did you hear that? That's a spirit. <laughs> and even there, was it, is it EMF reader? So you're the ghost expert. You got to tell me what these devices are. I believe so. Oh, the spirit box? Oh, the spirit box that was giving them names, right? Uh, yes. It would say random names like Peter, Jenny. Paul. Yeah. Rhonda. And I guess it was also giving the message of like um, cement and under yeah. and digging. But how does this and box... Mandy. There was East and Mandy. There was East and Mandy. Under yes. foliage. <laughs> but how does this box decide what words come out? I just don't understand the concept of the spirit box. Because they're talking about cement and murder. So I can see those words coming up because if this box has some type of a recording device, it could listen to those words, like our smartphones. But is this box just randomly looking up stuff in the dictionary? Well, they have, I guess... <laughs> I think I saw him, like, look up the, the dictionary that they were using, which I didn't know that was a thing, but... Is it a murder dictionary? A spirit box dictionary. Oh, there is a spirit box dictionary. Okay. Possibly, yes. And it's supposed to be the spirit speaking through the box, passing along whatever messages they want to convey. We're going to try it out when we go to Savannah. We will. With a free app. So <laughs> stay tuned for that. <laughs> But he, he didn't have his sunglasses on, he, which this, I was surprised about. But you said this is before the episode where he has the vision issues, right? I think it was. Because this was in 2017. And then when did he do the Amons one? That was later, wasn't it? 2019? I want, I want to say maybe 2019, maybe 2018. Yeah, so he didn't have his sunglasses on yet. It was just his regular look with the glasses and his hat. Spitted tees. Um, spitted tees. <laughs> he appears to work out. He is very swole. You got to be strong when you're up against these ghosts. But, oh, he told her, too. He's like, I'm not scared of you, Dorothea. <laughs> you got nothing, Dorothea. <laughs> he 
Somebody call her like a stupid old lady. <laughs> stupid old woman. Get up here. <laughs> He's so great. In the most ridiculous way. Yes. Obviously, anything with Zach Bagans, you can check it out. You'll have a good laugh. Because yeah. we don't cover him all the time, but every time there's a paranormal something. He's been in enough of our episodes. This was like a pop-up. He's just like, hello, I'm in this episode too. Uh, like, a pleasant pop-up. <laughs> and you're the one that told me about him being in Amons too. He keeps popping up in my episodes. He does. Gosh. He does. I'm glad you found him in this episode. Of course episode. you are. <laughs> <laughs> of course you are. So it is always very entertaining for us. It is. I enjoyed it. He's fun to watch. So again, to me, it's just all entertainment. But if you believe in that stuff, then you know what? You should check out the episode. And I believe in that stuff, but even I don't believe something. <laughs> <laughs> when you can turn Jennifer to a skeptic, that should tell you about Zach Bagans. It's entertainment. It should tell you enough. Yeah. But this was a fun episode. Aside from the murders, it was yes. it was a lighter episode in some ways. So the community thought she was this sweet old lady doing good in and around Sacramento, but she was murdering innocent people, cashing their pension and social security checks, and donating their clothing to charities. She preyed on those who had nobody to advocate for them. Judy, Burt's social worker, believes that Burt's death was not in vain because if he hadn't gone missing, Dorothea probably wouldn't have been caught. I'm sure there's truth to that. You would hate to say, like, his death wasn't in vain because that's what got her caught. You know, I wish he didn't. I mean, I'm sure. But at least, at least that's, I think, her way of not feeling as much guilt because she said she carries a lot of guilt about it because she's the one that found Dorothy and placed him in the home. So I think that's her way of resolving that guilt. It's not her fault. No, it's not. She didn't murder him. She was trying to do good for him. I think that's her way of saying, well, at least there was some good that he did. That came out of it. Yeah, because he stopped her. She couldn't kill anymore. I can see that. Yeah. And it's not her fault at all. Dorothea would have went on to probably commit a lot more murders. Yeah, she did not. It did not seem like she was going to stop anytime soon. Right. She was only 59 when she was caught. Which is crazy. She probably would have gone on to kill many more people. Yeah. yeah. Glad we covered her. This is our first female serial killer? I think so. Other? I think this is our first female serial killer. I think you're right. Okay. We're going to do more. I'm One of my friends is giving me a book on it. So I'm going to... Oh, really? Yes, we'll share. And if there's anything you want to do, we can throw in some female serial killers because they are much more callous to me. Yeah. And there's obviously a different, I think... Different MO. Different MO and different like mentality behind it. Usually with men, it's there's usually sex. It's very yeah, you know, and there's a lot sex of driven. yes, and a lot of anger, rage, Ra- yeah, a lot of rage. But with women, it's like they're calculating, very calculating. Yes, jeez, just it's interesting. So we'll yeah, we'll definitely have to uh, do more women serial killers. Yeah, what's up next? Well, I can't say I don't <laughs> know. <laughs> so I think in the I think in the schedule it's um I think it's the comic book killer. Oh, okay, that's a good one. But you're not sure because this not is sure. March Madness, so it's just going to be whatever it is. Yes. Thank you. Thank you guys for um a, you know understanding our crazy schedules right now. Right. It's going to be a little spontaneous this it, month. You might be surprised for the next few episodes because I think that's how March is going to go for us. Exactly. I, hopefully April's a little bit more calm. Cool. It'll calm down in April a bit. So we have some crazy court schedules. There's a bunch of housing stuff going on for me and Jennifer. We'll yeah. tell you about probably in April. Yes. When things um, settle are... down. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> so for now, stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. And bury them in your backyard. Yes. 
remember that. As Jennifer says, <laughs> stop burying people in your backyard. <laughs> yes, okay, bye. 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 <laughs>